the text for this last <coughs> worship service of the year is taken from Romans 8, the verses 28 through 39. Let's read that together. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. After the sermon, we will sing from Psalm 33, the stanzas 1, 4, and 5. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, how do you feel at the end of this year and at the start of a new one? Are you full of confidence and optimism? Or are you full of ambivalence and despair? Perhaps you have a mixture of these two emotions. The latter is most likely. We are not too sure about what happened in the past or what is going to happen in the future. There's a lot of uncertainty in our lives. One thing is for sure, however, our lives are always changing. We never know from the one day to the next what is going to happen to us. And that is why we also wish each other a blessed new year or a happy one. That is the wish for others and for ourselves. Suppose Paul would be amongst us today. What would he wish for others and for himself? We don't have Paul among us, but we do have this letter which he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. On the basis of what he says here in this letter, I would say that he would proclaim upon us the numerous ways in which we can count on the certainty of God's love in the new year. And so, instead of counting down the hours, the minutes, and the seconds, as is the custom of the end of the year, 
Before we do that, let us count down first the many reasons for God's love. In our text, Paul gives us 15 reasons to be sure of God's love. And that's also the theme for this New Year's Eve sermon. The theme is the Lord gives us 15 reasons to show us the certainty of his love. He gives us, first of all, five unshakable convictions. Secondly, five undeniable affirmations. And then thirdly, five comforting questions. I'll state that once again. The theme is that the Lord gives us 15 reasons to show us the certainty of his love. First, he gives us five unshakable convictions, and then five undeniable affirmations, and then finally, five comforting questions. Paul begins by speaking in verse 28 about what we know. He says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This is one of the most well-known and well-loved and comforting texts of the Bible. Why is it so comforting? Because there are lots of things we don't know. We don't know what God has in mind for us, for our lives. We don't know what's going to happen to us in the new year. We don't know whether or not we will get sick or whether we will have a child or a grandchild. We don't know either whether someone is going to die, a loved one perhaps, or even yourself. Will the Lord return in the next year? We don't know that either. We don't even know, as Paul says in verse 26, what we are to pray for. There are many things that we don't know. But in verse 28, Paul tells us, that we know five sure things about God's providence. The first thing we know is that God is at work. The emphasis is uh, is on what God does and not on what man does. Man can only respond to God's work. And our God is always at work. He doesn't take a holiday. He doesn't take naps. And he pays attention to everything that goes on, always. There is nothing that draws away from his attention. The second thing we know is that God is at work for the good. That's how he started his work of creation, and that is also how we will finish it. For in the beginning the Lord God said that everything that he made was very good. That was his aim then. And that continues to be his aim today. The third unshakable conviction that we have of God's love is that he works for our good in all things. In verse 17, Paul speaks about the sufferings that Christians at times have to endure. Indeed, as he says in verse 22, the whole creation groans like a woman in the midst of the pains of childbirth. No doubt in the past year you will have groaned many a time because of the various things that have gone wrong. Life is not always easy. The one person will have had more vexing things happen to him or her than the next. And this will be true of believers and unbelievers alike. 
Because of our human condition, all of us experience physical and emotional pain in one way or the other. But a Christian knows that God will use it for his good. A Christian knows that God is in control. He also knows that God does not, that God does not want the evil or the pain associated with it. But when it does happen, he promises to turn it to our good. A prime example of that is the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He himself suffered much pain and agony. In the end, they nailed him to a cross. And this happened only because of Satan, who is the agent of suffering and death. It happened especially because the man also sided with Satan against God. But God turned the death of Christ to our good. Because of his death we may live. God the Father raised him from the dead. He gave him a place of honor at his right hand. And now we may be sure that whatever pain we have experienced in the past year and the pain that we will experience in the new that the Lord God will also turn that to our good. But first, but fourthly, that applies only to those who love God. It is not for those who do not love him. The pain that the unbelievers experience is a foretaste of the hellish agony that they will experience if they will not repent. And the good things that they do enjoy here on earth, they receive to their condemnation. They will witness against them. For the good things here on earth are meant to give us an inkling of the great enjoyment that we will have in the life hereafter. They are meant to give us a taste of heaven. The most important unshakable conviction of God's love is the fifth one. Paul says that those who love God are those who have been called according to God's purpose. In other words, you cannot love God unless he loves you first. And the, the Apostle John says the same thing in 1 John 4 verse 19. We love because God loved us first. And God has loved us from eternity. That was the purpose of the act of his creating. It's very hard for us to understand the mind of God. He knows everything. And when he had created, and when he created, he had a definite plan for his creation. And he is working that plan out in a most wonderful and in a most miraculous way. From our perspective, that's hard to grasp. We are like that person stuck in the middle of a traffic jam. We don't know what's going on ahead of us, and we don't know what's going on behind us. We don't know the reason for the impediment on the road. A traffic helicopter has a much better picture. The pilot and his passenger can see the end of the line and also the beginning of the line. The helicopter pilot can see what's holding up the traffic. In that sense, we also have to understand God. Except he has a much wider picture. And he does not just see everything that's happening now. And he does not just have a snapshot from a little area of the world above. 
No, he has, he sees everything that has happened and that will happen all over the world. He has a complete picture. Indeed, he has a complete picture of the whole universe. He also has a complete picture concerning your life. It's not comforting to know as you look forward to the new year. He has a purpose. He has a plan. And he explains what that plan is for you and for me in the verses 29 and 30. He gives us five ways in which he works out his plan in our lives. That brings us to our second point, namely to the five undeniable affirmations of the certainty of God's love. In the verses 29 and 30, Paul gives us the five stages of God's plan for the lives of his children. First, he speaks about his foreknowledge, about those whom God foreknew. That's different from the next statement about his predestination. Foreknowledge has the word knowledge in it. When the Bible speaks about God knowing a person, then it refers to the intimate relationship that he has with him or her. It is not just intellectual knowledge, but it is a personal knowledge. In Romans 11, verse 2, Paul writes about how God foreknew Israel. He writes there, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. His knowledge ultimately refers to his love. It refers to the way he takes care of us and looks after us. And so you can even translate here that he is speaking about those whom he foreloved. God is a God of love. His creation is an act of love. That love does not depend on anything that we have to do. There are those who say that the foreknowledge of God has to do with the way that he could foreknow or that he could know beforehand who was going to believe and who was not going to believe. And on that basis, he would choose his people. It is true that God knows everything, including those who will believe and who will not believe. In that sense, God knows everybody. But there is one thing that he does not do, and that is to choose his people on the basis of their faith. He never chooses anyone on the basis of anything that man does. Listen to how the Lord God chose his people Israel. He says in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 and 8, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, O king of Egypt. The second undeniable affirmation of the certainty of God's love is his predestination. The word predestination means to decide beforehand. In the process of becoming a Christian, a decision is involved. Whose decision? Ours or God's? 
Well, throughout Scripture, the Lord God makes clear that we indeed have to make a decision. We have to do that ourselves. For example, Joshua says to the people of Israel in Joshua 24, verse 15, Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Will you serve the gods of the world? Oh, the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Make your choice. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, the Lord God also wants you to choose time and again. In the new year, time and again, you have to choose either for the Lord your God or for the world. You have to choose either for your flesh or for the Lord. You have to choose either for Satan or for God. Time and again you are put before a choice. Am I going to do Satan's will or am I going to do God's will? Whom will I serve? But do you think that you can choose for God independently? No. The point here is that God chose you first. He predestined you. And he did that from eternity. He made a conscience decision to make you part of his people. It is only because of his choice that you can make a choice for him. And this concept is very difficult for us to understand and to grasp. How can we choose for God if he has already chosen for us? If God has already chosen, what does it matter what man does? We cannot get our minds around that, can we? And for that reason, the majority of Christians try to get around that dilemma by giving man a certain role in his own salvation. They say that if you want to be saved, then you must first believe. Else God will not accept you. You have to first first choose for him. Do you know what the funny thing is, brothers and sisters, boys and girls? Those same people who say that they are the ones who have to choose for God, well, in their prayers, thank God for their salvation and their conversion. And they even pray to God for the conversion of others. Now, why do you think they would pray in that way? Because in their hearts they know that you cannot save yourself. In their hearts they know that you cannot turn to God unless he turns to you first. Listen to what the Lord God says in John 6 verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. If you think that you can come to God and choose for him on your own power, then you are an arrogant person. And that you are bound to look down on others who do not believe. For then you think that you chose for God and that you have something to offer him that others do not have. You have faith. The others don't. And so you're better than they. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, God wants nothing to do with that kind of thinking. Oh yes, you have to choose for God. 
But once you have done that, you can never attribute that to yourself. And the tension between the two choices may sound like a contradiction to you, but in God's eyes it isn't. It makes perfect sense to him. You can only choose him because he chooses you. And that is why you also receive the sign and the seal of God's promises on your forehead when you are already a little baby. You have to confirm God's promises by responding to what God has done. Because you also have to make that choice of God real in your life. You have to show that you belong to him in the way that you also want to choose for him. But don't think that you come first. No, God does. And that's why he also calls you. And that is the third undeniable affirmation of God's love. He calls you. How does he do that? He calls your name already at the time of your baptism. And he calls you through the proclamation of the gospel of the good news of salvation. He calls you to respond to his great work of creation and recreation. And he calls you to hear the proclamation of his word every first day of the week. And he calls you to be here in this church where the full doctrine of salvation is taught. And he has done that in the past year, and he will do that again in the new year. He beckons you to come into his presence. In the fourth place, Paul says that those whom he called, he also justified. When the Lord calls you, then he calls you to believe in him, to put your trust in him. It is through faith that you are justified. In other words, through faith you are put into a right relationship to the law, and therefore you are put into the right relationship with the lawgiver. To be justified means that the Lord God does not hold your sin against you any longer. And you do not just receive the forgiveness of sins, but God also looks upon you again with favor. And then in the fifth place, he says that those he justified, he also glorified. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, here we see the culmination of God's purpose for his creation. God created everything for his glory, including man, including you, including me. And when he speaks about our glorification, he speaks about the fact that all sin and all the effects of sin will be removed. But more than that yet, glory refers to splendor. It refers to brilliance. It refers to beauty. It refers to the most perfect and blissful state you can imagine. And you know God is doing that right now. And we will see the great culmination of that in the life hereafter. You will especially experience that on the day of judgment. Then God will give you and all those who died in the Lord, including those loved ones whom you mourn and who died in the Lord, they will give them all a glorious body. And heaven and earth will be united. Is that going to happen in the next year, in the year 2008? Who knows? God knows. But it's possible. But isn't that really something to look forward to as well? 
You are going to be part of that glorious creation. You are part of that glorious creation of God and you're going to be part of that glorious recreation. And please don't be anxious about that. Don't wonder whether or not this applies to you. For as long as you want to continue to serve God, even though you fail in doing so in so many ways, then you do not have to be afraid of anything. For I can just imagine that some of you are sitting here, well, am I part of all that? Is that me? Is God going to give that glorious future to me? Well, God affirms that with five comforting questions. We come to the third point. In the last part of chapter 8, Paul comes to a wonderful climax about the great love of God for his people. And then he asks five rhetorical questions. In other words, he asks questions to which we do not have to give the answer. The answer is obvious. He asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? Brothers and sisters, I do not have to tell you that we have formidable enemies. The greatest enemy is Satan. And he has millions upon millions of servants. And they come in all shapes and sizes. The world, the flesh, and the devil, they are all marshaled against us. And let me tell you, they are much too strong for us. And you are going to meet your enemy every day in this new year. And that enemy is within you, and that enemy is all around you. That enemy especially lurks in your flesh. We are programmed to sin. Even in our holiest activities, we sin against God. And that is because of our flesh. Satan is out to destroy you. He is out to destroy me. He is out to destroy this church, the communion that we have here. And so are the people of the world. They are also out to destroy you. And you will experience that again in the new year. But now Paul first asks this wonderful question. He states, if God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, God, the Almighty One, is the one who chose you. And he takes care of you from the cradle to the grave. He is the one who has that great plan of salvation in his great and wonderful mind. And he will work it out. You will not be defeated. Not because you are strong, because you're not. You're weak. But because of the victory of Jesus Christ. With the second comforting question, he makes clear further how that is. He says in verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God made his choice clear for his people by giving his own son. And there you see the culmination of God's great love. And now says Paul, do you think that such a loving God who gave his own son would not also give you all things necessary for body and soul? Of course he would. 
Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, are you worried about the future? Are you worried about what the new year is going to bring? Don't. God is taking care of you. Didn't he do that in this past year? Well, he will continue to do that. Else he would not have given his son. He may still be worried. You may think to yourself that you're not doing things right. You think about all the wrong things you have done in the past year and how you are so far from perfect. You may even be questioning your own salvation. But now listen to the third question that Paul asks. He asks, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. And with this question, he brings us into the court of law. And not just any court of law. No, you are standing here before God's judgment seat. And Paul is saying that because of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there is now no one in the whole wide world or in heaven who can bring any charge against you. For it is the Lord Jesus Christ who justifies. And we saw a moment ago how he does that through faith. And it is a faith that is his gift to you. But, once again, your faith is not the ground of your salvation. No, only the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is. Faith is only the instrument through which you acquire the benefits of Christ. It's all God's doing. You do not have to be afraid. You do not have to be afraid for your salvation. God saves. In order to emphasize that further, Paul asks a fourth comforting and rhetorical question. He asks, who is he that condemns? And then he points to the intercessory work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that the Lord Jesus prays for you all the time before the throne of God? He did that in the year 2007 and he is going to do that in the year 2008 and he is going to do that to the ends of your years and days here on earth. And he makes that intercession on the basis of his wonderful and completed work of salvation. Brothers and sisters, there is no end to our riches. And then finally, in the fifth place, Paul comes with a wonderful question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who indeed? Nothing. No matter what hardship you may encounter, or whatever trouble may come along, you may have to suffer persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. But none of those things will separate you from the love of God. Even if you were to die, even then God will be with you. He will be with you in death. He will not separate from you. He will call you home. Not even the angels in heaven could prevent that as if they would. And the demons can't either. The present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God 
that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. At the beginning of my sermon, I ask whether or not you are full of ambivalence or despair, or whether you are full of hope. I stated that most likely we have a mixture of the two. I hope that now, however, that after this sermon, you feel different. Think about the kind of God you have. Think about his great love. He chose you without any merit of your own, and he takes care of you from the cradle to the grave. And so you must be full of hope. And you must live out of that hope as well. You must live lives of thankfulness to show the great joy that is within you because of what God has done for you. And then you will also want to do your best, your utmost, to please God who saves you. No matter what, the year 2008 will be a blessed year. For it will once again be a year in which you can count on the certainty of God's love. Amen.